Jake totally stole my thunder. I was going to have everyone stand and exchange wet willies with one another. But you already stood and slapped hands, so I guess we're just going to have to skip that one today. I've also been informed, and I have a handy countdown timer, that by noon, you all want to be watching some game with some team. That's what I've heard. I don't know anything about that, but uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to keep it brief as possible. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read through the scripture that we're talking about today. And by the way, if you've got your, your handy-dandy notebook, I think we're on page 62. I believe that's uh, the note-taking page for today, so you can check that if you've got your book. But the title, which I have conveniently put on the screen today, is Not So Smooth Sailing from Mark chapter 4. But I'm going to go ahead and read through our passage in its entirety, and then say a prayer, and then launch into this sermon. So here, here we go. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to speak to this congregation uh, from Mark chapter 4, this story which is so rich in meaning and depth that I can only just barely scratch the surface of, Lord. Thank you for letting me do this today. Lord, I ask that you pour through me the gift of preaching that I may glorify you with the words that I share today. Lord, allow all of our hearts to be open to the message that you have for each of us. And I know it'll hit each of us in different ways, much as it has hit me in multiple ways as I've prepared this. Lord, allow our hearts and our minds to be ready to receive the words that you have shared with us through the book of Mark. Amen. A hypothetical question to launch us today. Each of you has an area of expertise, whether you realize it or not. So no matter what job you have or what role you play in life, you have some area of expertise. Some of you are, are, are businessmen or businesswomen who have uh, leadership abilities and, and you know exactly how to run the business underneath your charge and you may have expertise in a particular industry. Some of you, like my wife, are teachers and your expertise is in teaching and classroom management, and you know how to deal with that group of kids or students that are under your care. Some of you are stay-at-home parents, and that has an enormous degree of responsibility to it, and you know exactly how to manage, or you might not admit that you do, but, but you have a, a sense of, of control over your household, and you know how to parent your child, and you know how to, how to keep your house ready, and you know how to do these things. No matter what you do, you have some area of expertise. For me, I, I would like to think I have some degree of experience in youth ministry. It's been a little over 10 years for me now. And just like for you, there are things that come up in my job that might strike fear into the heart of others, but, but I am ready to handle the task. Just like you in your role, there might be things that pop up and, and others might say, how can you possibly deal with that situation? But you're like, no, I got this. This is what I do. So for me the thing that might strike fear into the heart of others 
is a little event called the lock-in. <laughs> and those of you that are chuckling, you may know why this strike fear into the hearts of others because perhaps you've been a part of one of these as a chaperone or, or maybe just as a youth or maybe you just think you know what it's like and that's enough to keep you away. I don't feel that way about lock-ins. I'm kind of weird, maybe even within the circle of youth ministers, in that I actually kind of like them. I know that's, you're thinking of me as a crazy person right now, but I I sort of enjoy the lock-in. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, a lock-in is another word for an all-nighter. So it's where you get your group of students, in our case, you know, middle school and high school students, you gather them together, probably at your church building, and you lock the doors figuratively, although you also don't want them to escape, so maybe there's some literalness to that as well. And you have an entire night where you basically stay up all night, and you play games, and you watch movies, and you eat food, and you do crazy things like have Nerf Wars throughout the building. Which, by the way, if you find a Nerf dart underneath your chair, just come talk to me later, because it's probably one of ours. But here's the thing. For the uninitiated, the thought of staying up all night long, particularly with young adolescents, can seem terrifying. For me, I got this, right? And those that have done it before, you may know what it takes. I know that if I'm going to have 30 to 50 or so students under my care for a night, I, I know what I need to do. I need to recruit at least a couple of chaperones. That'd be wise, wouldn't it? Maybe three, four of us. Sounds like a really low number, but that's all you really need to stay up with you all night long. I know I'm going to have to buy some pizzas. We're probably looking at 10 or so pizzas to to feed the hungry masses. I know I'm going to have to plan a certain number of activities to keep all of us engaged. And those activities are going to have to accommodate the number of students that we have. And I'm just going to need to be ready. Like, I'm going to have to mentally prepare myself and expend my energy reserves in an efficient manner so that I, at least, can be awake and vigilant all night long. I've done it before. I can do it again. I'm ready for it. It doesn't terrify me. But even in your area of expertise, in the things that you are prepared for each and every day that might scare others, there is some threshold that you might possibly reach where even you are afraid. And each of us, it's different. For me, here's an example. I plan for a lock-in. Fortunately, this has not actually happened. This is hypothetically speaking. I plan for a lock-in. I think I'm going to have 30 middle school kids. That'd be, that'd be good. That'd be great. So I, you know, I, I recruit three or four other adults to stay with me all night long. I buy eight to ten pizzas. I plan some events that we can do throughout the night. I get a movie ready. You know, the, the room is set in case anybody needs to fall asleep. And I'm ready to go. And then we open the doors at 9 o'clock at night, ready for 12 straight hours. And not 30, not 50, not even 70. But 200 middle school kids walk in. I would be crying in the corner. I would probably just quit, right? Not because I don't love you guys, but because I would be thoroughly unequipped for that moment. I would not be ready. It would be beyond my ability to control. I'd be sitting there going, we don't have enough pizzas. Uh, The scale of my games is way off. I definitely cannot manage 200 middle schoolers with three adults. That's just not going to happen. I would be terrified. Even though the general idea of a lock-in is well within my capabilities, that scale would be beyond anything that I was prepared for. And my guess is you could think of some disaster scenario, even within your personal area of expertise, where you would have to throw your hands up and say, this is beyond me. I'm out. I'm going to (laughs) die. And you might very well be true. 
The, the good news is, we are not alone in this experience of being terrified from things that are beyond our control. As we just read, and as we'll walk back through again, even the disciples, within an area that for some of them was expertise, sailing a boat across a lake, even they had a threshold at which point they were just no longer equipped to handle what was going on. So let's go back through this again. Before we kind of jump back into the passage, I want to just show you guys a map. And actually, there, I found that there's a map inside your little, uh, your DBS book. But if you want to look all the way up to the top, this story takes place near the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a, an area that Jesus did a lot of his early ministry. So way up there in the top, top edge of the map is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is approximately 13 miles long. And at its widest point, it's about eight miles wide. So it's not a tiny lake, but it's also not the biggest lake ever. If you were stuck in the middle of it, out of a boat, you might very likely drown before you were able to swim to shore. That's a likely possibility. So Jesus had been doing a lot of ministry in this area. We think he was probably near the north shore of that lake at this moment in a city of Capernaum. He's been preaching. He's been, uh, you know, doing some miracles in the area. And he's right there. This is kind of his hometown area. And then we get to... This verse, we'll start in verse 35. At the end of a long day of preaching, it was evening, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So again, we don't know exactly where he was, but here's another picture of of the lake. We know that he was probably somewhere near Capernaum, and you can ignore all those little things, you probably can't even read them. It's just different things that Jesus did around the area. But he starts somewhere near the top, and we know that they go out into the lake. And they're headed somewhere to the other side of the lake which would not have been a big deal. In fact, we even know the kind of boat that he probably would have been in, in case you're a nerd like me and you would like to know this. They found a boat a few years ago buried underneath silt that was the kind of boat it dated from the time of Jesus. We know that it looked basically exactly like that. That is modeled after the thing they found in the ground. It was approximately 27 feet long. It probably had a sail, probably had some oars. You could put maybe 15 people on it. It'd be pretty full, but you could. This is basically what these guys were in. Not a big deal. Several of these men were fishermen. This was their area of expertise, sailing a boat across the lake. They were also not alone on the water, which I think is kind of a funny thing that we can get from this next verse here. They left the crowd behind. They took Jesus along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. I'd never noticed that before I started preparing for this. I've always envisioned them by themselves on this lake with what's about to happen, but they weren't alone. There were some other boats trailing along with them, which just adds to the richness of the story. But while they were there, a furious squall, a huge storm blew over, and the waves were so big they were breaking over the boat, and it was nearly swamped. So this was a bad situation for these guys. Now, some of you may be thinking, how bad could it get? The lake's not even that big. But there's documented evidence of storms coming out of nowhere because of the topography of the land just sweeping in with these winds that are converging. And things can get really nasty on the Lake of Galilee very quickly. So it's not out of the ordinary. It's not, it's not impossible that this could have happened. They could have been out there thinking it was going to be fine and all of a sudden find themselves in the midst of a terrible, dangerous storm. And one thing that's interesting to note, and you can't read it in this version, but maybe your version has it. This one says furious squall, but your Bible might say the word great storm or something like that. And we're going to see this word great show up several times in this passage. And Josh pointed this out to me. He said that there's the word in Greek, megas, which means great. And it shows up three times in this passage. The first time is here. Great is the storm. File that away. We'll keep score later on. Great was the score. 
Now, according to the narrative, like we just read, this boat was about to be sunk. It was filling up with water, which is not a fun thing for anyone. Here's a famous picture by Rembrandt, right? This is what I picture in my mind. These guys are about to lose control of this boat. They were in their area of expertise, but even they, as we're about to find out, were terrified because of this storm. Drowning was a very rational concern at this point. So here's what we see in verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, and he was sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Seems like a logical question to me. Think about Jesus' role here for the moment. Jesus wasn't one of the fishermen. He wasn't an experienced boat guy. He had a completely different role in the midst of these guys, who we assume were probably relatively young men. We don't know if they were teenagers necessarily. We know they weren't old guys. They were young men. And Jesus is in their midst, 30-ish years old, and he's in the role of their leader, their teacher, in that language, their, their rabbi. In other words, he was in the position of authority. He was responsible for this group of dudes. And he was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion, no less, which that's how I would want to do it on a boat. But that's what we get from him. The guy who's responsible for this party is asleep in the middle of a storm. And so they ask him the question, don't you care? Now, what could they possibly be asking? Were they, were they asking him, don't you care? Because they knew that he had the power to save them. Or were they saying, we're panicking. Shouldn't you be panicking too? Kind of like a misery loves company kind of thing. But here's what they've done. And this happens three times in this passage too. They rebuke the creator. The created rebuke the creator. And we're going to see this rebuking thing happen several times. It's like a sharp criticism of something or someone. So they say, don't you care that we're all about to die? That's their response to Jesus. Now, if you skip ahead, and, or if you're a Bible nerd, and you know that in the book of Matthew, the same story happens. And in that book, we actually see them saying a couple of different things. They say, Master, save us. So it's logical to think that they were probably thinking, doesn't he care? He's got the power. He can do something to save us. But regardless of what they're thinking, I know that if I was in the boat, literally speaking, I would be thinking, Jesus, why don't you do something to stop this? Don't you even care? And that makes me want to know, makes me want to ask all of us in this room this question. Have you ever been in that, a situation like this? Have you asked the question of God, God, don't, don't you care? Don't you care that I am in the midst of this storm? Don't you care that my boat is sinking right now and I do not see any way of getting out of this? Don't you care? If you can save me, don't you care? And I, I think here's an interesting point to, to look at. Maybe they assumed that the occurrence of the storm was evidence of his lack of concern for them. I mean, think about it that way. Wouldn't you think if you were the disciples and you'd already seen Jesus do some cool stuff, wouldn't you think that simply by having him in your boat, that that would be enough to avoid any kind of a storm? I know that I think that a lot. I think to myself that if Jesus is on my side, if he's in my boat, then storms couldn't possibly threaten me. But I think a lot of you know, and the Bible certainly teaches the exact opposite of that fact. Look at John chapter 16, 33. It's, it's not on the screen. But it says, in this world, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. 
James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who stands firm under trial because he will receive the crown of life. But they are standing, they have to stand firm under trial. Way back in Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, there's this passage about, you know, rely on the Lord and do not fear or be dismayed. Well, why would they be fearful or in dismay? Because bad things are happening all around them. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the story of of Israel is one fraught with dangers all around them. And so we're constantly reminded that having Jesus or God on our side does not mean that the storms don't happen. They absolutely do. And some would argue that they might be even more likely to happen because we've planted our flag on the side of God. And so Satan's going to come after us now. But the good news is, He doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He doesn't just leave us to fend for ourselves, as we'll see as we keep going. Verse 39, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the waves, then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. The creator rebukes the creation in this passage. He wakes up, stands before the boat and says to the, the enormous great storm, just stop, just stop. And you, you know what happens, right? We already read it once. Great is the calm. This same Greek word, megas, which is describing the calm that befalls the storm, it's in direct contrast to how bad it was. As bad as it was, it is that good now. It is that calm, it is that peaceful. It's a complete shift from what they had been experiencing to what they were now experiencing. He's trying, Mark is trying to show us using his language that there was a huge shift and it's all because of the power and the authority possessed by this man, Jesus, that any of this was capable of happening. It didn't just stop slowly and kind of the wind dies. It just, it just ends. And I love this. It was instant obedience from creation. He didn't have to say, like sometimes we do with our kids, right? All right, I'm telling you to stop. You come back like two seconds later. Hey, I thought I just told you to stop. And then three times later, you come back and you say, all right, this is your third and final warning. If you don't stop it, then there's going to be trouble. Have you ever said that, parents, to any of your kids? Probably so. We act like we don't, but we do, right? That's not how it works with Jesus. He just says, quiet, be still. And there is instant obedience from creation because he has the power. He has the authority. And then he turns to his disciples and he says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now I'm sitting here going, why are you afraid? Is he really, is he really asking them this question right now? I think we've already provided plenty of evidence as to why these guys might have been afraid, but just for fun, let's go back over it again. So these are, some, several of them at least, are experienced fishermen who would not fear average bad weather. I think that's fair to say. And even the guys on the boat that weren't fishermen, they were all from this area. They were probably used to life on the lake. I would have to assume that. But certainly some of these guys were trained, experienced fishermen. If it was just a little bit of bad weather, they would have been fine. We know it must have been bad. Their boat was in the process of being sunk out in the middle of this relatively large lake. Even if they could swim, sure, maybe they could. They're a long way from land. This is legitimate reason to be scary. And their leader, who is the only guy there who is potentially capable of doing anything to save them, is asleep in the back of the boat on a pillow. Why are they afraid? I don't know. 
I would be. I would be terrified in this moment. But then he goes on and he says, do you still have no faith? It makes me wonder, no faith in what? What is their lack of faith in this moment? And I think that, that Matthew's gospel is showing us that he's, they're crying out to Jesus to save them. So it would appear that their lack of faith is not about whether or not he could save them. Their lack of faith was about whether or not he would save them. I think they knew he had the power. I think they were doubting that he was going to do anything. I think personally, I could be wrong, but that's how I read this. They knew he could. They weren't sure he would. And, and I got to say, isn't that true in our own experience in faith and in this life? I think most of us, at least those of us that have been to church for a long time, and I know that doesn't apply to everyone here, but a lot of us it does, right? Maybe even born and raised in the church. Intellectually, you've read enough, you've seen enough, you've experienced enough in this life, you've prayed enough, you believe that God is capable of, of handling any of your storms. But when you're in the middle of that storm and your boat is doing this and you're about to fall out and you're about to drown, it's a different question entirely whether or not he will reach down and save you. That's the question I think we wrestle with more than anything. It's not if he can. I think most of us think he can, but will he? That's the thing we struggle with. And I think that's what the disciples were struggling with too. And that's why he says to them, do you still lack faith that I will make sure you come out of this okay? I liken this to a lot of experiences that I'm sure, again, a lot of you parents can relate to. Right? Have you ever asked your child to do something that you know is going to be difficult for them to do? You know that they're going to be afraid to do this thing. Now, you have no intention of letting them get hurt, and you have told them as much. You've said, don't worry, child of mine, you will not come to harm through this activity. But still, they fight against you. They cry out for you to save them at the smallest little thing, and then they get mad at you because you seem to not care about their predicament. Meanwhile, and, and you're standing there saying, you know, at least in your head, I know you can't see this truth right now, but I will not allow your worst case scenario to occur. You will not die from this. Even if it is scary, even if you do fall, you will get back up again. You will have learned a lesson about trust, and you will be better equipped the next time around. Have y'all ever experienced that before? You know that you're not going to let it happen. They don't quite get that. And so they're afraid. And you're sitting there going, do you, not, do you not trust me? I think that's the situation that Jesus and the disciples find themselves in. And think about this. Just again, if you're keeping score. The third rebuke in this passage is the creator rebuking the created. So he goes from they rebuking him to him rebuking creation to solve the problem. And then he inverts and he says, I'm going to take a little moment to rebuke you guys and just to kind of call your attention to what's going on here. Let's go ahead and move on here. Uh, verse 41. They, the disciples, were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? You see, this is the third great, the third use of the word megos. Their fear was great. The storm was great. The calm was great. And from those experiences, their reaction is great fear because they saw a glimpse of the power and authority that this man yielded. In their presence, in their moment that they thought they were done for, he does something that blows their minds. So creation got it. 
Creation immediately understood the power, understood the authority, and responded within, with instant obedience because it got who Jesus was. The disciples, on the other hand, are sitting there going, scratching their head going, who is this guy? They'd already seen him do a miracle. They're about to see him do another one right after this, but they don't yet know it's too early in, their, in his ministry for them to really get who he is and what he's about. They're starting to see glimpses, but they just haven't quite figured it out yet. And because they don't yet get it, their obedience, their sense of trust is not yet fully developed yet. If they got it, perhaps they would have responded instantly with faith in him. But because they don't yet, their obedience and their trust is slower in coming, which I think is also true for us. When we don't put our trust and our hope fully into God, when we don't get who he is and get what his power and authority can do for our lives, our obedience is slow. Our trust in him is slow. So what is it that they were lacking? Here's my main point. If you had to write something down, write this down. The power within is greater than the power without. This is what they did not yet understand. The power within their boat, in the form of Jesus Christ, was far greater than any of the power that was coming at them from outside. The storm, the wind, the waves, the terror. Having this power, though, does not mean that the power without disappears entirely. I think we've already made that case. If anything, the power from without can strengthen. But you have power within that is far greater than anything that comes from without. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians. We're almost done here. I love to teach from this one, so some of y'all may have heard it before. This is Paul in Corinthians. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Skip ahead a little bit. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do you guys get this from that? That he's telling us that there is a power within us, inside our fragile jar of clay, that even in the midst of the pressure and the crushing and the despair and the perplexity, the storms of life, the water coming in on our boat, even in the midst of that, we can withstand those things because the power within is greater than the power without. Our obedience that is built on hope that allows us to point our fingers at the storms of life and say light, momentary, even when we know that they really aren't light or momentary. There's nothing light or momentary about cancer. There's nothing light or momentary about the death of a loved one or an addiction. We don't feel those things as light or momentary. But the truth of today's story is that if we trust in the power of the one who is in our boat with us, we may very well find sweet relief in the here and now. He may calm our storm right now. But even beyond that, We have the promise of an eternal glory that far outweighs any of the trouble we find ourselves in today. And that is something that we can hope in and shout hallelujah because of. Some of you in this room right now, you you may be struggling with this concept. I know I do regularly. 
doubting the power within, doubting whether or not he will save. Not that he can't, but will he? You may feel like you need to come and talk to somebody about that. Elders, if y'all want to go ahead and, and come on down. We're about to enter into a time of, of prayer in this room. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to uh, sing some songs. And as we've done for the last several weeks, if you would like to respond, it doesn't have to be a response of confession. It doesn't have to be a response where you're repenting for something or seeking God's prayer because of problems in your life. Although it could be, that may very well need to be what you respond to. But if you just, if you want to celebrate, If you want to come before God and his people and get baptized today, if you want to ask for prayers for anything, we've asked three of our shepherding couples to come down. And if you would like to, we invite you to come and respond as we sing. Our prayer for you is that you have drawn close to God this morning, that you will continue to draw close to him this week by doing the work he has put in front of you and by being light in this world. God bless you. Have a good week.